Good morning, friends. This truly is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It is so good to gather for chapel worship today for our community that is online in this space. How great it is that we can all be together in worship this morning. A couple of notes to help guide you through this service. If you did not pick up a note card and a pencil on the way into the chapel, please make sure you do so, and that way you will be able to participate in our reflective opportunity after the message. Also, our last song, we will be projecting in English, but in the hymnal you will find Spanish and French. So if you would wish to sing in one of those languages, please make sure you grab a hymnal that is at the back of the chapel as well. Let us stand now as we join our voices in our gathering hymn. difficulty between virtual land and in-person land this morning. So, um, Clay, would you be able to bring up the responsive Psalter? And I will be glad to lead that for us this morning. We want to offer thanks to Dave Mansfield, who is in our virtual land today, for his willingness to participate. And we will get you again, Dave. Don't worry. I will read the light print. We will respond together with the bold. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless God's holy name. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, the Lord who works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed, has made known God's ways to Moses his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding steadfast love. The Lord will not always accuse nor harbor anger forever. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is the Lord's steadfast love toward the faithful. As far as the east is from the west, so far does the Lord remove our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for the faithful. As for mortals, their days are like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. I'll be reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. One of the scribes came near and heard the Sadducees disputing with Jesus. Seeing that Jesus answered them well, the scribe asked him, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and beside him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, this is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him 
any question. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay, Um, I'm going to talk a little bit today about the Anabaptist Bible Project, and um, let me start just by saying that uh, there is all kinds of bubbly things going around in in Mennonite land about that very title. There's just two letters in the most recent issue of Anabaptist World where people are, at least one person is asking a question about what it means to say that we're publishing an Anabaptist Bible, and maybe that's a little bit uh, overweening, uh, which I personally agree with. But um, <laughs> I think it's important to think a little bit about the context in which this happens, and that is that study Bibles uh, have a real um, appeal 
uh, to publishers. Uh, there, there are study Bibles of all kinds that are, uh, that are brought out over the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years. We can take the scholarly Oxford study Bible. There's the teen study Bible. There's the probably pregnant mother's study Bible. I don't know. Lots of them. But it is also interesting that in the last, since the turn of the millennium, there have been a number of Bibles published for the purposes of um, providing aid to people within particular faith traditions to read the Bible somehow with a, a congruency or an understanding of their traditions. So uh, the Lutheran Study Bible was published in 2009. Um, and uh, the, the Catholic Study Bible is in its third edition, I think uh, first published in 2011. I couldn't quite figure out what the first date was for that. Um, there is an Orthodox Study Bible published in 2008, and the uh, Jewish Publication Society published the Jewish Study Bible on the Tanakh in 2004. So when, um, when the idea of an Anabaptist Study Bible or an Anabaptist Bible came up, it clearly fit within this broader movement to uh, enhance uh, people's interest in the Bible and to encourage uh, reading and using it in the context of particular faith traditions. And I think it's, it's uh, quite significant that John Roth, who is the director of the uh, Anabaptism at 500 project, spent quite a bit of time in the Mennonite Lutheran dialogue in the early years of the, um, of the turn of the millennium. And I'm guessing that some of his energy for this came from his, his uh, discussion with Lutheran colleagues. The Anabaptist Bible project is part of a larger effort uh, called Anabaptism at 500. And that uh, is uh, an effort to mark the 1525 anniversary of the first rebaptisms among uh, folks that became identified with the Anabaptist movement. Um, if you're a historian, you know that there are discussions about exactly when this started and who all was involved. But 2025 is a pretty good 500-year marker for the baptisms in and around Zurich in, in 1525. So the idea of marking this, which has been on the agenda of Mennonites in Europe for a very long time, has, has emerged now and is, giving, is being given leadership both by a Mennonite World Conference in the international context and also by Menno Media in, uh, in the US and Canada. So the idea is that this Bible project is, uh, will encourage new engagement with scripture, uh, renewed faith in Jesus, stronger faith communities, and a more vibrant witness. A lot of this material I've taken right out of the, the documentation, which you can find on the website. And if you want to pursue that, I didn't put the website here, but it's very easy to find. Just go to Anabaptist, Anabaptism at 500, and it all will show up. So um, I was able to be part of a group of people that were gathered at the end of August to, to sort of launch this project in its current stage, and Tim Reardon was also there. Just to underline, we were not invited to be there as 
scholars or experts. We were invited to be there as ambassadors. And that's one of the interesting things about this project. Um, John Roth specifically said that when he talked to Lutherans about their study Bible, they said, oh, it was easy. We just got 66 scholars to write something about the books of the Bible, and then we published it. And of course, you know, Anabaptists just can't do that. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> we think of ourselves as a lay um, lay-led community hermeneutics kind of community um, in, in whatever ways that might be interpreted. And so the, the, the idea was then developed to actually have 500 groups of Bible study folks around the U.S. and Canada who would gather and read the Bible together. So uh, can I have the next slide? Um, these are the goals of the Anabaptist Bible. 500 plus study groups, um, 2,000 plus hours of Anabaptists reading and studying the Bible in their community, 500 plus future years of Anabaptist disciples transformed by their encounter with scripture, one Anabaptist Bible featuring marginal notes from the Anabaptist study groups worldwide. Now, I need to underline right away that that worldwide has kind of been shrunk down to US and Canada in terms of who's really going to be invited to participate. It's not that international groups couldn't also participate, but the Bible's going to be in English. And so there will be some limitations there. And the, the gathering of these Bible study groups is primarily being done in Canada and in the United States. It's a very ambitious goal. Um, the ambassadors, I don't know, Tim, how many groups have you recruited? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you don't have to answer that. <laughs> that, but that, I mean, uh, we've been reminded at least once or twice that that's part of our job is to, is to go out and try to help people who are interested in, in these groups. And it's a fairly well-designed, defined process. There are guidelines. It's a four-session Bible study. Um, the leader is, is given instructions. There's a scribe who will take notes, like I think it's 150 words per passage, it gets then sent in and the editors will work with that and use those as um, side notes for the texts of scripture. The groups will be assigned three texts, one from New Testament, one from Old Testament, one from Psalms, and then um, you don't get to choose, you get the text that they send you and then you discuss them together and send in your notes. So, next slide. So what, what makes this Anabaptist just for fun yesterday, I thought, I'm, I'm just going to go out on Google and say, what is an Anabaptist? And it's really kind of funny to do that and see what all shows up. Because the fact of the matter is that it's, it's a term that has a historical rooting in the 16th century, literally meaning rebaptizers, re and it's an insult in that context. So you have all that history there, but the fact is that it's a, it's a word that is widely used among various groups that descended from that 16th century movement, and it because it doesn't have a reference point with a particular church, people can use it in a, in a fairly broad way. So the, the claim of Anabaptism itself is uh, it's used widely. I sometimes think that people uh, 
like a word that doesn't have to be, where you don't have to point to a specific group and say they're the ones that are doing it, and then you can evaluate against that group because it allows more, more flexibility in, in interpreting. But certainly, this idea of the 500 groups of lay readers is very central to the project. And uh, if, you, if you look at some of the uh, scholarly literature on Anabaptist um, biblical interpretation, that it will talk about congregational hermeneutics as being very, very central to, um, to the Anabaptist way of reading scripture. Now, the other thing that was emphasized quite a bit in our uh, gathering in August was the idea that Anabaptists read scripture Christocentrically. And I'm sure, as you might imagine, there's also, Tim, you're smiling. <laughs> I, he, he didn't want to be part of this presentation, and I don't blame you. It's, it's complicated. <laughs> there, there, um, there, there's discussion about just exactly what we mean by Christocentrism as well. And in a bit, we're going to actually uh, see a video of Richard Rohr talking about Jesus hermeneutics, which is not exactly going this down this path in exactly the same way. So that's part of the conversation. But I thought it would be helpful to just think a little bit from the 16th century writings about how this idea emerged. And you can kind of trace the use of Christocentrism in the writing of, of say, Mennonite and related theologians in the 20th century. But this is Pilgrim Marpeck, um, who is one uh, theologian who gets widely quoted. Christ has taught and instructed us with full understanding. He has also sent us the teacher in the heart, the comforter to comfort, and to teach us with Jesus' own words and teaching. We are taught not by the human voice, but by the literal external teaching of Christ and the apostolic teaching of the gospel, not by men, but by God, the Holy Spirit himself. So that would be an example of the kind of writing that has been uh, used to, to underpin the, context, the, the idea of Christocentric hermeneutics. If we can have the next slide. Um, some of the interesting work on 16th century interpretation was done by Stuart Murray. He's a British a scholar and theologian, and uh, he did a lot of reading in the primary sources and then tried to collect them. And I'm, I'm taking a quote from him, uh, but he's talking about the, the difference between the 16th century reformers more broadly and Anabaptists. And that had to do with how Jesus is read. Murray talks about it as a difference between Christocentrism and Christological readings. But I think this particular paragraph maybe clarifies that a bit. So the, the reformers suspect that Anabaptists' emphasis on Jesus as example rather than redeemer was a step away from the radical principle of sola gratia. Anabaptists felt that works without faith had been replaced by faith without works. Michael Sattler, who was another early Anabaptist leader, pronounced a blessing on those who remained on the middle path, turning aside neither to the works righteous nor to those who teach in the name of a gospel, teach in the name of gospel, a faith without works. And I, I think uh, if, if we looked at the way uh, particular folks have um, discussed this in more recent times, you can kind of see. Uh, 
the tensions between Mennonites who focus very strongly on an ethical reading, uh, the Christocentric hermeneutic as an ethical reading, and uh, people who would uh, like to to infuse within that ethical reading also a, a sense of the spirit of Christ in a in a um, more more fully perhaps. So um, I'm gonna. Um, I'm going to ask now for us to watch the video, if you can pull that up. Um, this, is, this is Richard Rohr, and, and we didn't watch this. I found this out. I found this from Courtney. Uh, this is a, a, a different, not, not conflicting, but a different take on uh, hermeneutics. And I think before I finish up, we should just take a look at this. So. scripture well you know I call it my Jesus hermeneutic now hermeneutic is simply a fancy word for your science of interpretation if you don't reveal the criteria by which you interpret scripture a good teacher has to do that or basically you're at the whim of his feelings or her feelings you know, what turns me on today, we can go down a, a left-wing alley or a right-wing alley uh, because there's no real hermeneutic. So when I speak of the Jesus hermeneutic, and it's so simple in a way, I hope not too simple, but I say the way we should interpret Scripture is the way Jesus did. Now, first of all, <laughs> his Scriptures were not the New Testament. It hadn't been written yet, all right? So when he talks about Scripture... He's talking about what we would call the Hebrew scriptures. Or I think I hear Pharisees. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wait until they walk by. It doesn't bother you. We have llamas next door. We have... I am who you say I am. <laughs> we have dogs. We have horses back there. So we're surrounded with God's creatures. And Venus is sitting back here somewhere. Anyway, if you look... And this isn't hard to prove. If you'd give me time, I could do it. That Jesus doesn't equally quote uh, all the scriptures uh, at all. Some he actively disagrees with and opposes. So to say every word of scripture is equally inspired, Jesus doesn't treat it that way. For example, he never quotes the book of Joshua and Judges, which are arguably the most violent books in the Bible. Uh, in the book of Leviticus, which has like 130 thou shalt nots, he, there's one hidden in the middle, thou shalt. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's, to my knowledge, the only time he quotes the book of Leviticus. <laughs> there's a very selective reading in Jesus. That's just honest. And at this point, for Christians not to admit that is culpable dishonesty. Because passages that are punitive, threatening, he just ignores them. You know, when he first goes into the synagogue in, in Luke's gospel, and he opens the scroll, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He is calling me to bring good news to the poor. He quotes the whole passage, but then, dang it, he skips the final line. Go back to Isaiah and read it. The final line 
and I will bring a day of vengeance from my God. He doesn't quote that. <laughs> so we could say, okay, Jesus, you're playing fast and, and uh, easy with the scriptures. No, passages that are exclusionary, imperialistic, punitive, or threatening. Negative. He doesn't quote. And he just doesn't. So if we use, you know, we always said, we Christians, we interpret the scriptures in the light of Jesus. Well, I'm just taking that a little further, the way Jesus did. And he gives us a really good template, a really good model to connect the dots and see where the text is going. That's what you got to do, because otherwise, you know, you can prove any single thing you want from a line of scripture. If you just say, as people often do, well, it's in the Bible. Well, gang rape is in the Bible. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I mean, there's all kind of things in the Bible. Because it's in there, that means it's okay? No, connect the dots, and you will see positively, Jesus moves toward mercy, nonviolence, inclusive civity. Uh, he... He, he never uh, makes the hero of his stories his own people. It's always the Samaritan, the outsider, the pagan. What does that say, you know? That he isn't about creating an in-group. He isn't about creating a, a little uh, country club of people who are all like me. Today's gospel in our lectionary, I read it this morning, you know, is when the disciples come back from Samaria and, and they're not well received. And they say, should we call down fire from heaven? And what does Jesus say? Listen, if they're not against us, they're for us. He's always moving the boundaries out. But because most of our history has been at that tribal level, you can't see what you're not ready to see. And you can't see what you're not told to pay attention to. So if your preacher was himself at the tribal level, which most of them have been because it's job security, uh, if, there, if there's no gift of prophecy in the church, and by prophecy I mean self-critical thinking, uh, you just, the, the passages where Jesus knocks uh, tribalism, you just can't see it goes right over your head, right over your head, when it, it's hidden in plain sight. Yeah, it's I'm right there. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you, go. you just look down. Yeah. You can't see what you can't see. It's, it's uncanny that the, the eyes uh, have to be told what to be ready for. And I think that's our job as a preacher. Say, look for this, and then you'll see it yourself in the Scripture. You don't need to believe Richard. What I just said, you go look at the Scriptures, and maybe some of you will see it for the first. My God, it's, it's obvious. It's obvious. <laughs> I don't even need to work hard to prove it. But that frame was never given to most people. So they look through this frame. You know, how can we make Southern Baptist Alabama culture the, the center of the world? Well, there's something good about Southern Baptist Alabama culture, but it isn't the kingdom of God. <laughs> and when you pull it into that, you don't have much to talk about. You really don't. No.
So just to say, I think this is a really interesting presentation. I, I wish we'd have had it when we were meeting as a group because I think it would have enhanced our conversation. We, we, I, think, I think there is a struggle going on in the midst of the broad uh, family of Anabaptist-related uh, descendants about just how it is that we read scripture Christocentrically. Um, uh, I'm, right now I'm working on a project on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and, and so I think, there are, I think there is more that you could say about Jesus' interpretation of scripture than Richard Rohr does uh, without arguing that he's wrong. Uh, and, and the question of inclusivity and exclusivity fits in, in that context. I think there's more scripture that we might be able to look at and think about. In any case, that's me. And I wasn't asked uh, by um, anybody in the Anabaptist Bible Project to opine on that. I, I do want to say one more thing. If you could get my last slide up here. Uh, the question of translation is also something that I think is interesting about this project. Uh, the decision has been made to use the Common English Bible. Uh, they did a lot of sort of focus group work on that before they made this choice. And the reasons they listed were that it's a scholarly translation, but it's clear, simple, and easy to read in public. Uh, and it has an identity as a people's Bible. I think that's the way the Common English Bible has tried to portray itself in its own marketing, and that would fit with the Anabaptist idea and the understanding or the hope, I guess, that it's more accessible to young people. And some of the testing had to do with immigrant groups and their comfort level with reading English from the Common English Bible. So I went back to look at the other, um, at the Catholic and the Lutheran study Bibles. The Catholic study Bible uses the revised edition of the New American Bible, and the uh, Lutheran Study Bible uses the um, NRSV, which would probably have been the other translation most under consideration. In any case, this is a vast project. It's almost uh, audaciously um, um, hopeful, and um, I'm really interested to see how it comes out. I um, I think I'll probably be a, a little part of it going forward as well. So um, you can ask me more questions later if you want. And, and I don't mean to tease you, Tim. You can talk to him about it too. So, Thank you, Nancy, for the time that you're giving, not just to the presentation today, but to the larger project, and Tim as well. As you have learned in your weeks or years in seminary, what would a gathering be without a learning activity to accompany the teaching? And so today we do have a, an activity, uh, could be called a reflective activity, a responsive activity, or a learning activity, but it does include a note card and a pencil. In preaching class, we talk a lot about hermeneutics. And we talk about hermeneutics as it relates to the text of Scripture, but also as it relates to the text of our lives that our lives, the church's life, society's life, is a text that we bring our interpretive lens to. And so for this activity, I invite you to reflect on the question, what does it mean to live with a Jesus hermeneutic? 
So taking this lens and applying it to the text of your life. What does it mean to live with Jesus hermeneutics? And we will take just a couple of minutes to jot down some notes, lines of poetry, or drawings as you reflect on this question. As we prepare to leave, I wish those of you who get a fall break at the end of this week a wonderful time of rest and renewal. You will find on the back of the bulletin our seminary chapel calendar for the rest of the year, including next week's gathering when we will hear from U.S.-Mexico border missionary Mark Adams on his work and his ministry there. Friends, as we go today... Let us go with the hermeneutical light, carrying the text into the world and shining that light wherever we go. Go in peace. Amen. Amen.